Hi, it's Joel Pilger, and this is episode 90 of the Rev Thinking Podcast. How can I, as a marketer, ignite the pathway that I want when somebody is reacting to my fill-in-the-blank? Welcome to Rev Thinking, the podcast for creative entrepreneurs who know the best way to deal with the future is to create it. This is the conversation between creative leaders and consultants, discussing what it really takes to run a thriving creative business. Hello and greetings, all you fabulous creative entrepreneurs out there. Welcome to another episode of the Rev Thinking Podcast, where today I am pleased to bring to you Nina Stanley at Mod. Now, if you don't know Mod, you should go visit Nina's firm's website at themoderati.com. We'll include a link in the notes when you go to the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or Spotify, wherever you listen. But I'm very pleased to have this conversation with Nina uh, coming to you today. I found Nina to be a very human and honest and transparent owner of a creative agency who was very happy to share her story. And it, I couldn't help but remark or, or notice that if you go to the mods website, their positioning statement that's right up front says we are the human experience agency. And if you know me, I'm actually a huge fan of a word in that sentence. And no, it's not human or experience or agency. It's the word the. <laughs> This uh, agency is very well positioned to be the only agency out there doing this human experience thing. Uh, now, I'll say this. It says human-centric, not media-centric. No one is BFFs with a consumer or marries an audience or raises a customer. Humans are motivated by dreams, passions, needs, and desires. In order to reach them, you must speak to their innate humanity. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me very curious. Very curious. So Nina and I unpack that, but more importantly to you as a listener, I get into her story. What, what are the key attributes of her creative firm? When did she start it? Why did she start it? And what's that journey been like uh, evolving to becoming an agency, to having an expertise, to developing strategy as an offering? And then, of course, there's this whole area of neuromarketing and neuromarketing research. Uh, what is that? How does it work? And of course, what's it like during COVID to be offering this expertise and how is it adapting? So I think you're really going to enjoy my conversation with Nina and without any further banter on my part, let's get into the episode. First question is start by just telling us your name and your title and your company. Okay, Nina Stanley. I am Chief Creative and Neuromarketing Officer of MOD. Of MOD. And is MOD uh, short for anything? It's not. It's meant to evoke modern but people often say that we're the Ministry of Design or the Mod Squad, if you're depending on how old our clients are. So, oh, that's yeah. funny. And then how many years have you been in business? 16. All right. And what does Mod do? We are a human experience agency. And what that means is we remove any friction between humans and the brands that they're experiencing. Hmm. 
And who are some of your top clients? Some of our top clients are Aetna, CVS Health, Xfinity, and all of the Xfinity suite of products, Comcast, NBC Universal. Yeah. And then what we have more. Those are our bigger. So your bigger, bigger ones. ones. All right, and here's a fun follow-up question to that. What's the number one thing you look for in an ideal client? I enjoy clients that are collaborative and give us very challenging puzzles to solve. Mm. Okay, and then what is your favorite thing about being a business owner? Uh, let's see. I love the freedom of being able to make a decision and go with it and not have to present my way up to the top and say, we should really be doing it this way. Um, the speed at which we can move, there's no cap to how far we can go. It's really up to us and how hard we want to push it. I think those are probably my favorite. Okay. I love it. Uh, is there a recent business accomplishment, maybe over the past year, that you're really proud of? I'm curious to hear if something sort of springs to mind. And it could be as mundane as, yeah, we finally converted our bookkeeping system to XYZ. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not that. Okay. Yeah, I would say one of my top accomplishments is, well, there's two things. The first one is helping to sell a really big idea internally to a really big company. So there was an SVP who saw a a shifting tide in business that would radically change the roadmap to their current business model. And we helped flesh out that idea from basically it was like back of a napkin sketch had a meeting and was like, I need to present this. This is a hundred million dollar investment and basically blowing up the roadmap of our business. And I need, I need to sell it. Otherwise we're all going to be extinct in like five years. And we were wow. like challenge accepted. Is this and, pre, um, pre, uh, pre COVID or uh, post COVID? Pre. Pre. So, so not only did it blow up their business, but then that happened. And so I'm sure there's still yeah. a lot of pivoting going on there, but I actually very much, uh, that, that's a great sort of starting point because just I'm imagining all of the steps and the journey that you've been on to find yourself in the position to even have that conversation. What, what, like what's that been like <clears throat> and, and how was that moment, the realization of a dream, if you will? Well, that is such a great way to put it. And I I never thought about it that way. Well, I do think about it that way, but I've never verbalized it that way. Usually I just say it's like the miles of shit that we've had to crawl through over the years to prove ourselves to be Mm. at the table for that purpose instead of here's the idea that I've already sussed out and now you guys go make it pretty. Like we became a trusted partner through the years of proving ourselves with every small detail of any piece of work that we were given, we just made it amazing and well thought out and um, streamlined and all of those, you know, big corporate words. And they were just so happy that they could rely on us to make them look good 
even if it was like a last minute situation, which we all know happens all too often, but it was like a holy shit moment where it was like, we, we did it. We earned that seat at the table to be an advisor, not just a designer. Right. Not just an executor of somebody else's idea. And, and this is often where I talk about how <clears throat> so many creative firms, uh, I feel they start out as, uh, as, a solution that's, that that executes a project, but where you want to get to is you want to be solving problems, which is very different than projects, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I'm guessing you uh, you somehow with this client and maybe your other clients over the years have been on that journey of hey, we don't want to just tackle your projects, we want to solve problems. But that's that that's so much easier said than done. Right, because you can show up every day and do a great project again and again and again and gain their trust. But at some point, you must have had to develop a point of view and expertise and been comfortable with inserting yourself into, hey, we see something that perhaps you don't see. We would love to talk to you about this. Was was that how it unfolded? Um. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to give you a quick, in a nutshell, it was a different client, but the story rings true. So we started working with Aetna about nine years ago, nine, ten years ago. And um, our first project with them was the disease management newsletter. Like, can you think of anything more sexy? And it was like a 16-page um, printed booklet that went to patients with chronic conditions. And it was full of um, copy that was written that they had to pay for. They were basically renting this copy. They okay. didn't own it. And then it was full of rights managed stock photography and like basically the most expensive throwaway piece of something that you could be mailing to people hmm. and we took it and looked at it and ripped it apart not literally but you know the, the thought of what are we sending who are we sending it to why are they getting it what demographic are they do they want to read this and like all of those questions that go into these micro decisions as a designer you're putting it back together with only the necessary elements and when we were finished with that, it was like a $20,000 project. And it became a four page, um, they owned the copy, they, we did a photo shoot, they owned the imagery in multiple, per, multiple uses. Like it became this thing that was very engaging. And then we also did um, a PDF version which could then get emailed out. So you were saving on postage. I mean, it was like the whole thing, it just seems like a no brainer, but nobody else was doing that for them. They were like, oh, you want us to do this? Well, this is what it is. And it's like the, the path of least resistance. And our thought process is always, all right, you ordered a pizza, what kind of pizza are we making? Are we doing DiGiorno? Like, are we doing, you know, like, something homemade are we doing handcrafted are we making the dough like how detailed are we getting here so setting up expectations and then blowing them away with what you provide and thinking about their money like it's your money 
and their clients, like they're your clients. Um, yeah, that's, that's how you get to the place where they're like, oh, these guys understand our business. They're not just executors or like design monkeys. They're really thinking about what is the best thing for me as if they were me. And do you wear the label agency in that relationship? Is that how, what, like, would your clients call you an agency? I think clients call us so many different things because we straddle a lot of different arenas and it's, we have a really amazing high-end design team. We can also strategize the shit out of something and like our strategy people are amazing. And then we have like coders and we have animators and we have basically it was like everything that we need to do the way we want it executed in the timeline that we want it done is in-house. So we don't outsource anything because when you outsource it, that's when the breakdowns start to happen. And we are like a very well-oiled machine where it's like some of us are, I consider myself like a, a generalist because I know a lot about a lot. And it, it's those experiences, like my job is to, is to connect the dots, right? To tell a story through, experience, through the experiences that I've had and learning about my clients' businesses. But then other people's jobs are to like design something or code something or this, that, and the other thing. So I think that combination, and it's a very long-winded answer to your question, which is some people call us an agency, some people call us a marketing firm. It's really like whatever. Some people call us a consultant. Mm -hmm. It's really whatever resonates in their brain what we do. Yeah, sure. Uh, but you can't really, there isn't really a word for it. That's why we created Human Experience Agency because we were really just designing experiences all over the place. Well, maybe maybe by, by omission, I think there's something I notice, and that is I don't hear you saying that your clients call you a shop or studio, those, you know, those names that I would say suggest more of an executional shop. Like, oh, I've already solved the problem. We just need these people to execute. Uh, especially when you use a term like consultant or consultancy, that's obviously a very interesting and provocative term. When you think of a, a client calling you and saying, hey, I need you for your thinking. And then yeah. once we figure out the thinking, then we'll go make something. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So a lot of times we're just brought in for that piece. Sometimes yeah. we don't even design anything. We just think. And then design maybe like the presentation deck. So this one thing that I was talking about ended up being ideating on how are we blowing up the roadmap? How is it going to affect existing business? What's the long-term planning? How are we going to replace this business with this new business? And, you know, it was very like, um, it was very financial and like what's, what are, what's trending with, what, it's very futurist thinking as opposed to here's what's in our face and I just need to present it uh, internally. So it was super interesting in that way. Well, believe me, I'm a huge fan of getting paid to think, I mean, clearly that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a lot of what I do, but I love it when, uh, when my clients, uh, owners like you make that leap and they, f they finally recognize, oh, the thinking and the strategy is not sort of the giveaway or the freebie included with this big thing called a deliverable, whether that's a, you know, a TV commercial or a, 
an advertising campaign or whatever, that that thing is actually truly valuable and it can be packaged, sold, productized or whatever in a way that it becomes a key driver of your business, not just in terms of uh, a loss leader, but actually uh, a true offering and a, and a revenue source. Yeah, it's it's my, it's one of my passions. So like that's the most fun that I have. So I'm a self-taught graphic designer. Um, I went to, I was a ex-ballerina that went to art school and um, majored in sculpture and photography, uh, you know, worked at it. a couple of magazines in Manhattan, like in New York City, and um, started designing retail shops. And that was my, see, I'm, I'm like trying to merge my love of fashion and big brands and creativity. And I was sitting in the chair one day and I'm like hand sketching out this thing. And I'm like, oh, this is a nightmare. Cause this was before like mobile phone, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. And um, well, not before mobile phones, but before the iPhone and taking pictures of stuff was so easy to send it to somebody. And um, I was sitting and sketching at my desk and I was like, you know, it'd be so much easier if I could just design this on the computer and email it to someone. And I was like, well, how do I do that? Because <laughs> I don't know anything about computer-generated design. And um, I taught myself Illustrator, and I would design my retail shops on the computer and then just email them to my vendors. And they were like, holy shit, this is so awesome. Like, I'm so glad. Now I know what your vision is, like, right away. So that cut down. And so, like, the very inception of trying to find a better way to do this, to make it more effective, faster, cost productive, blah, 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 is kind of how like we've operated all the way through. Now, is, is part of that story you were telling me there the, the early stages or the genesis of, of MOD? Yeah, actually. That was when I used to work in corporate America before starting my own business. But I remember, um, so this is when I was in New York and my husband, who is also my business partner, was a institutional broker. So he used to work with small banks in um, overseas trading. And, you know, something completely foreign to me. I'm like, I'm creative. I don't understand that. <laughs> but, right. And then we both were originally from Philadelphia and we decided to move back to Philly to be closer to our families and, you know, for various reasons. And then we did. And I remember coming back to Philadelphia and just being like, there is no good design around here. Like Philly's come a long way in like the 15 plus years that I've been actually, it's, oh my God, it's been like 20 years now that I've been back. But I remember coming home and being like, this sucks. Like there's nothing inspiring around. I'm sure I could probably do something about that. So started freelancing and with my self-taught design skills started freelancing and it, it started to take off and I was having so much fun and it was my work was showing up all over the city and uh, I was like all right well that's a little bit better to look at like maybe I'll go for a bigger client and we got busy enough that we were like well maybe we should quit our jobs and start our own business and that's how it that's how it happened. Well I'm always I'm always excited to in this moment in in your story <clears throat> to ask this question uh, my colleague Tim Thompson and I always we always say that, you know, someone gets into this business in this industry 
for one of three reasons, for fame, for fortune, or for freedom. Uh, and I'm curious, at, when you started, which, which was the driving one for you? Wow, that's awesome. Okay, so I'm trying to not use that cliche like that's a great question because people always say that when they don't know the answer and they want to buy some time. So. Right, you're stalling. <laughs> that's a great question, Joel. Yeah. Um, I think... Gosh, when I first started, I would have to say it was a little bit of freedom and fortune mm -hmm. because I, I was creatively stifled from working at, I used to work for a large retail chain and it was like, here's your four colors and your three typefaces and, you know, you're seven icons that you can use for everything and anything that you want to design in perpetuity. And you're like, oh my God, if I have to make like another red and yellow sign, I'm going to kill myself. So I think part like creative freedom was definitely part of it. And also schedule freedom. Like mm -hmm. I don't necessarily always come up with the best ideas nine to five. Sure. Sure. So right. you want to make sure that like, yeah, freedom, no, freedom in the, well, I, what I'm hearing there is um, freedom takes on various forms. And what I hear you saying there is a freedom to do my work when and how it most suits me to produce my best results. Like, I didn't even think that that was possible mm -hmm. when, when we first started Mod. I, I was like, well, you work for a company and you, you work your ass off and you get promoted and that's the chain of events in your life. And I remember sitting back and thinking like, well, does that have to be the chain of events in my life? Like, can I maybe write some of the script? And, you know, my husband and I talked a lot about it and we, we decided to go into business together because we're very like-minded in that way. We're both very entrepreneurial, but uh, neither one of us had ever been an entrepreneur before. So there's a humongous learning curve. Like you think, oh, it's going to be great. I'm going to work whenever I want and, you know, like take a break and this, that, and the other thing. And it's not like that at all. You're working like a million times harder than you did when you worked for, you know, a regular company and there's no vacations and no time off. And, but it is rewarding in a different, in so many different ways. Uh, back to your original question, we were broke and I wanted to make some more money. So fortune and I was creatively stifled and needed to express myself, not just creatively, but I, I also really enjoy the business part of business. Yeah. So freedom and finance. And fortune, yeah. Well, you're, what you just said there a second ago about how hard you have to work when you start your own business reminds me of the somewhat now famous quote. Um, I looked it up. I think it's Lori Greiner, who's one of the shark tankers. Um, and she said, entrepreneurs are the only people who will work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40 hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> right? It kind of nails it, doesn't it? That's so good. It's, it's so, so good. good. It's so good. I'd rather work 80 hours a week at something that I truly love and feel passionate about and feel like I'm making a difference than working 40 hours in something not that. Now I'm curious, what was it like uh, when, you know, when you think back to when you started, I mean, obviously you and your husband uh, teaming up, but you're, you're a female entrepreneur. How much has that world changed or what, what was that 
like for you back then? Was it more difficult to break out, to start the business, to be, you know, viewed as credible, respected, et cetera? Has that, has that changed? Yeah. Uh, it, it's changed, I think, because I've changed. I think the world has definitely changed, but I'm older. I'm more confident in what I have to offer a client. In the beginning, you're just like, whatever you want, like, I'll, I'll do it. If you want it to be purple, it, it'll be purple, even though I don't really think that it should be purple, but I'll do it because I need the money. Right? So like when you're a freelancer, you try and say, you know, you never want to draw a, a line in the sand, no matter what stage you are in your career. It's really should be more of a partnership. But when you're younger, you're less confident in that. And as a young woman, I mean, I was pretty relatively young when I started the business and there were people that would only talk to my husband. We'd both be on, at the table, both be sitting there, both had the same understanding of the business. And I would show the creative, I would get up and present and they would, I would sit back down at the table and then they would look at John and relay everything to him. And I was like, what, what the fuck is that? That's a very <laughs> real thing. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I have a number of, uh, you know, owners, clients that, that uh, are women and to hear that same story told many, many times over uh, is so frustrating because I think it's something that most of us are blind to, but yeah, I've <laughs> definitely heard many times the, the, that story of, well, either my business partner or my executive, you know, my, my employee, whatever, is really the one who has to close the deal because I can say it and it only gets this far, but when he says it, it cinches the deal. And that of course, mm -hmm. is just, it's just maddening that, uh, that, that that still happens. Now, hopefully that's, hopefully that's getting better. And maybe as you said, your journey of confidence is also putting you in a place where you can command respect because you know you're worth it. You, you have that confidence. Well, it's really hard as a woman in business to, if you're, overly confident you're a bitch if you're yeah. like um if you're not confident enough then you're like oh she's just like taking up space and not worth listening to and then oh she's just like attractive or we you know i'm not saying i am i'm just saying what I, you, they, there's always like a bucket that they try and put you in and you're you never feel like you're quite in the right space I do feel like I'm in the right space now. I think knowing how to read a room and who you're talking to is super important. And also listening. Listening is so important because if you just go in and bust out with, you should do this, this, and this, they're like, well, how the hell do you know? Like, you don't know my business. You don't know anything about me. So listening without thinking of what you're going to say next is really important. Well, I'm, I'm reminded of some of the greatest advice I ever received from one of my mentors, the, the great entrepreneurial coach, Dan Sullivan. He taught me, Joel, the only thing you have to sell is confidence. And at first when I heard him say that, I thought, no, you're nuts. I sell these services or this expertise or something. But then as the years played out in my career, I realized, no, he's absolutely right. And I'm hearing that same story in you that you recognize that it, what it really boils down to now is confidence. And that's a combination of many, many 
elements and years and experience and wisdom and expertise. But they do come together in the moment as, yes, I'm going to listen, of course, but then once I speak, I'm going to speak from a place of confidence. Yes. I mentor a lot of young women in my office and, or I try to at least. <laughs> and um, you forget, you know, back when you were 26, 30, whatever it might be, that how different of a mindset you're in. And, you know, our businesses, we're, we're people pleasers, right? Like we all want everybody to be happy. We want everybody to like what we do. You're, if you're in the creative business, you're like, I worked really hard on this, like, don't you love it? And if they say no, you're like personally offended because um, it's time away from your family or your dog or like whatever. You know, I stayed up all night looking for this photograph. Like, are you insane? This is perfect. And, um, you know, it's a personal attack. I'll tell you a funny story. So when we first started, I was very much like, I used to go to Barnes and Noble every weekend and pour through magazines. I always liked very um, European, Swiss-inspired design, high-end packaging, things like that. And I was like, why do people want this? You know, I have to understand the psychology of why people can't live without like this thing that they actually could live very easily without. But like. What about the packaging makes it that much more enticing or the design? So anyway, I used to just like, that's how I learned really was through looking at things that I, that I liked and then using elements of that in my own design. But I remember I designed this thing, it was for a, a, um, a condominium building that was going up here in Philadelphia and we named it, designed the logo, um, did like the 3D renderings for what it was going to look like and um, designed the brochure and the website and all, you know, all the branding and marketing materials. And I did it in this Hermes orange with touches of brown and white. And I was like, this is so beautiful. It's so classy. And it was exactly the right message. And I showed it to them and I was like, here's your marketing materials. <laughs> and they, they were like, well, I don't know if I like the orange. And I about had like, a nervous breakdown. And I was like, how could you not like that? And I would get very combative like early on in my career. And my husband would be like, what are you doing? Like, we're supposed to be friends with these people. We're supposed to be selling this stuff to them. And you're like fighting with them on why they're wrong. And I was like, I'm designing beautiful, I'm designing stuff for pigs. Like they don't understand what good is. And he was like, so, I did end up winning that one where they, we did go with my color scheme and then four other buildings in Philadelphia copied it, but you know, like whatever, but it's just funny because like from, I would never do that today. I would never do that today. Well, let me Confident. ask this question though. Let me ask this question. Were you right? Yeah. Yeah. You see? Well, but if you ask me, I'm always right. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I, I was I... definitely right. And the building sold out before they broke ground. So I think it was, I think it was good. Well, it's, there's always that, that funny dynamic, right? In this agency client, but then consumer dynamic, right? Because you're helping them sell to their buyers, their consumers, but they have to like it. 
because they're buying it. You know, they're buying what you're selling. Yeah. So there's there's these multiple layers, and yeah, you're you're just hitting that nerve of, well, it doesn't matter whether or not you like orange. It matters whether or not your audience, your customers. That's my like go-to orange. phrase in meetings now. It doesn't matter what we here at the table like. It doesn't matter. It matters what the people buying it or using the product or the service are going to, what's going to resonate with them. Well, this so, is where um, in, in RevThink land, we often try and create a distinction between opinion and knowledge because it's very easy, especially when you have internal meetings uh, with creative firms and everybody has an opinion and that's, that's fine and, and lovely and appreciated. But when it comes time to making decisions, we nearly need knowledge. You gotta have understanding. And, and often that's just goes way beyond, well, I don't like it, or I, I do like this. And so you, you have to, you even have to do that with your clients, not just your team. Uh, that is so epically important. And I use the word epically, like not for to be overly dramatic, but it really is. I remember my, my dad was in medical advertising. So I grew up like going to visit him in the office, like a very different thing from what we do, but it's still, you know, you're still marketing medicines to people that need them. And I remember him telling me when I was in art school, he was like, there's a very, there's a huge difference between knowing in your gut what something should be and then being able to explain what that is to a client. Explain your reasoning behind your gut feeling because every creative person is going to have a gut feeling like I just know blue is the right color for this. But you have to be able, the person that you're talking to doesn't live in that world. They're like, how am I going to show ROI to like my boss so I get promoted and you know, they're like in a whole different thought process that you need to understand. And if you understand that and can explain to them, hey, blue resonates with your target market you know, 70% more than green. So I think that we should use it, you know, like it doesn't always have to be that, you know, strategic, but especially if you're trying to sell in a big idea, you have to have the, the reasoning behind it. It's not just like, well, it looked good. Who yeah. the fuck cares if it looks good? You know, like it could look great and not produce any results. And what? it's not just about making money or selling a product, but what is helping the person that you're trying to connect with, make a decision easier. Mm. So That's they can go back to their life and the other things that they want to figure out and, and they want to do. Like if somebody, one of our clients is Aetna, who wants to sit around and learn about a health insurance plan? Like nobody. <laughs> nobody ever, right, right. So they just say whatever. Well, so if we can help simplify their lives through design and strategy, then that's, that's the ultimate goal. All right, so let's unpack that for a second because I want to bring up something that I noticed when I was first getting to know you and Maude. And because you're, 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 you're touching on something that's interesting that I think is almost a meta or a, a bigger picture because I would say there's a classical understanding that, well, an agency helps clients get more customers, you know, increase conversions, generate more revenue, yada, 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 right? Transactions but you're talking about something larger there. And that makes me think about this whole question of psychology that you've mentioned a couple of times. And I remember as I was getting to know your creative firm and I was looking at the, the expertise that you have, 
and I notice, okay, brand storytelling, strategy and consulting, and then wait, neuromarketing research. Neuromarketing, and I was immediately super curious. So one, good job on your marketing and your positioning because you made me curious, which is the gold standard for a well-positioned creative firm. But what is, I mean, what is neuromarketing research? What's this whole consumer neuroscience thing that you do? Um, okay, so in a nutshell, consumer neuroscience is understanding the brain's pathways to making a decision. That's a very high level. So then how can I, as a marketer, ignite the pathway that I want when somebody is reacting to my fill in the blank. So commercial, print ad, whatever, direct mail piece, whatever it might be. How, how can I resonate with this person the way that I would like them to feel emotionally about this brand, product, service, whatever it is that I'm, that I'm putting in front of them. So if I'm serving something to you at the right time and the right media outlet, does it say the right thing? Is it concise? Does it have the right colors? Does it have the right imagery? And how is my actual brain responding to it? So it's not just a focus group where like, I mean, I, we could have a whole separate podcast on how focus groups are flawed, but let's just say for now that they are, and um, you're not getting accurate information yeah. from them. I'll concede that. So with, yeah. <laughs> so with neuro testing, you're actually seeing brainwave patterns and what part of the brain is engaged at the time that they're experiencing your creative. So let me, let, me, let me interject with this because I would think some people hear that and they say, wow, this sounds a lot like manipulation. You know, I'm thinking of Don Draper and, you know, the, uh, you're, we're just here to create an itch and, or, or, you know, an itch and, and the only way to scratch it is to buy this product or this service. But what I hear you saying is I think something larger and that is we're using neuroscience to motivate a certain behavior or outcome or decision in this person's mind that is not as necessarily as simple as just buy this stupid thing. Am I right? You're a hundred percent right. What is the phrase with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, taking a cue from Spider-Man. Yeah. But if, if you, sure, anything in the world could be used for good or bad. And I'm sure there's, there are some applications of neuroscience where you could skew somebody's decision in a certain way because you've targeted them in a very specific way. However, the great thing about neurotesting and neuroscience is it's, it's passive understanding. So I'm not actively changing your thought process. I'm trying to learn about what your thought process is so I can better give you what you need. So th that's the place that we're coming from where it's like, okay, well, if I give you this and you react poorly, how can I make that a better experience? And I'll give you a really quick example because this gets into like super um, nebulous territory very quickly, but 
there was a product that we were helping redesign both the delivery mechanism and the communications around it. And it was a, um, a self, um, it was a shot, I'm, I'm like making the motion where it's like an EpiPen where I'm putting a shot into my leg, right? And it was for a specific chronic condition and it was super complicated. So very quickly, you had to keep it at a, the medicine at a specific temperature, laying in an, like a flat horizontal thing in the pen, and then you had to take it out, and then it had to become another temperature, and you had to shake it up, and blah, 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 blah. And then you have to give yourself a shot, right? So like giving yourself a shot is not a great thing to do, period. Wow. So how can we make this whole experience seem less daunting? Because the first thing we did was we went on and, and we researched um, consumers' feedback. And they were like, I don't know if this is working. I don't think I'm giving myself the right dosage. I don't think it's mixed. How do I do this? They were all super confused. And that was just from doing some research on YouTube. And patients were actually posting their own tutorial videos wow. to help other patients. So yeah, you know that, that you? it's not right, right? Like if like me, the patient, I'm like, this, I don't understand what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm going to do my own at home video <laughs> wrong. Yeah. So we proposed not just, and one of the biggest issues was the mixing. So when you mixed it, it was supposed to change color to show that it was mixed, but it, it was the color change was so slight that you couldn't really tell if it was changing or not. And we actually asked them, can you send it to us so we can not inject ourselves, but we can go through the process ourselves without the injection. It was so confusing. So that was number one, is just make two very different colors. And just that alone, customers were like, oh my God, I know it's mixed. Like, this is a genius. <laughs> it was awesome. So like when you get that kind of feedback and you use neuro testing to see Am I giving you the right information in the right way to help you do something easier? Simplify your life. You feel good. You're like, I helped this person with a really shitty situation and have it be less shitty. And they're happy. Well, one thing I, I love. Well, let me just say real quick, the, the byproduct of that is that they, they love this brand now. Mm, interesting. Sure. Sure, because they now, I mean, maybe they're picking up on the cues like, hey, th these people that bring me this product, uh, they care. They improved this. They actually did help. That's the word I heard you say. And they, they simplified my life. And I also find it interesting, I'm hearing you tell this story of your, your agency expertise actually delves into the products themselves. It's not just how it's packaged, presented, sold, promoted, et cetera. Sometimes it's the product itself. And of course, why wouldn't it be? Yeah. I mean, we dig in from literally the ground up and it's like, what, what is this thing and how do you use it? And what is it for? And who else is out there doing the same thing? And what is like your true differentiator and all of these puzzle pieces that you're putting together. And then, then the creative is like the easy part after that. That's the whole hard part because you're really figuring out what is the meat of this? 
And then the way you present it, it, it like almost figures itself out by the time you're finished all of your due diligence. You're like, oh, okay, it should be this. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking of the phrase start with why, which was, you know, the famous Simon Sinek uh, book yep. that, that came out of his famous TED talk. But he talks, you know, the phrase is start with why. And what I'm hearing you say there is you help your client kind of go back to square one of what, well, what is this thing, but what purpose does it serve? What are we trying to do here? What's the purpose and meaning and mission objective of this thing? And once you get really clear about that, oh, well, now this becomes a whole lot easier for us. We know now how to redesign the product and then, of course, how to communicate that to people and so on and so on. And so on, as the story mm -hmm. you just told demonstrates. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it like, um, we've, what I think is unique about us is that not only can we do that and then be able to market it, which most people are just do one or the other, but we can also do that at scale. Cause mm. that's a very difficult thing to scale. Cause really it's like, how do you scale thought process? Yeah, and what do you mean by that when you say um, scale? Is that is that is that story you just told an example of of that? What does that what does that mean? So doing it at scale would just mean like, can you can you then do that ten times at the same time, or do you have four people and like you can only take one project at a time because you don't have enough brain power to multiply that at this and have like. 10 jobs running at the same time. Mm -hmm. So sure. we're able, we figured out how to, how to scale that thinking, that critical thinking, which is pretty cool. So now let's, let's briefly touch on, or add a layer maybe to the story you just told, because obviously right now we're in this time called COVID-19 and the way people are interfacing with and connecting and receiving products, of course, is shifting from, so many things are now online rather than in person. Things are being delivered rather than being picked up and bought in person and so forth. How, how has that shifted what you, the kinds of problems that you're solving for your clients? Because I'm guessing there's this whole shift to the home <laughs> that's somehow impacting how you advise and, and guide your clients. It's impacted literally everything. Like, I, I don't want to say, like, this changes everything. <laughs> you know? Like, it really does. So what are the touch points that we used to have with consumers? And how can we still interact with them in a positive way without everything being digital or virtual? Um, how do you still deliver an experience to them? And has that experience changed? Does it need to change that's the product or service need to adapt um so it's not just thinking about how are we communicating with them but are we are we offering them something that's still needed in the same way um so there's been a lot of and it's it's the same story of like going back to the root of what are we working with here it's now a different time and is we're working with adaptable and if not how can we make it adapt for today and then also in the future because it's not you know we're not going to be in quarantine forever we better not be <laughs> yeah. i'm already starting to crack but it's also like 
what are people's mental states today? They're different. People are mad, they're frustrated, they're home, they're isolated. You know, there's a study that shows like your, your brain is, it starts to atrophy in isolation. So you're just not as creative. Mm. Um, you're not as good as what you used to be good at because you're not thinking or vibing the same way that you used to. Um, so there's all these byproducts that we haven't even experienced yet, or we're just starting to. You just explained something about myself. <laughs> no wonder I feel so much, I feel so much dumber than I was a few months ago. Um, no, it's interesting. You said you use the, 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 the word touch points and yeah, I can't help but think about things where maybe I'm just making some wild guesses, but I would think there are so many uh, clients, brands, what have you out there that are thinking, oh, well, we, we need to change our, you know, our, our products and our services and how we communicate in this way. And everyone just is going to this default, well, we'll do this over Zoom and we'll do this over email and we'll do this via a webinar. And then you realize, oh my God, that's what everybody's doing. And the Zoom fatigue is real yeah. and all that. So how, yeah, are you having to almost invent new touch points to address the fatigues and the, <laughs> the common approaches, the, yeah. the answers that everyone's just rushing to? Yes, the answer would be 100% yes. So it's, I think everybody was like, oh shit, everything has to be on Zoom, like you said. And then you're like, oh, okay, everybody's doing that and that doesn't differentiate me at all. Or does Zoom even offer what I want it to for this intended purpose? So it's really sitting back and thinking, I remember, you know, we came up with a whole way to do virtual events um, for our clients. So it's not just externally, but internally as well. So like if somebody used to give a all hands presentation, which are needed in so many different ways. And let's say you have a sales team, you have an internal sales team and every year you go to Orlando and there's like 500 people and you present all the new products and services that they have to sell this year. Why? It's what's our new, our new value statement and here's your new marketing materials. As a salesperson, you're pumped for like months after that. And you have all of this energy and, and you can attack these things, right? But like, what if that doesn't happen anymore? Or that big conference becomes a Zoom call. Like, not helpful, right? Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The most boring thing on the planet. So how do you make that just as engaging as it used to be, but not in person? So that's something that we worked on um, really hard and we put packages together for our clients and we've done it several times and they're like, you know, I don't know if I'm ever going to go back to a regular in-person conference because this is kicking ass. Oh, good. It's that kind of stuff that you want to innovate on, not, not eliminate or just blindly replace, but think about it and say, is this still important? Why? What am I hoping to achieve from it? And then how can I achieve that in this time? Well, I'm sure you've encountered people who say, well, we can't get 500 people in a room, but we can have 500 people on a Zoom call and it may not be 
you know, it may not be as good, but it's close. And then when you actually experience it, you realize, no, it's not even close. There's so much <laughs> missing that we take for granted that you really yep. do have to do a deeper dive and ask, what was it about the way we used to do it that made it work, that was so energizing or that was so inspiring, what have you? And you start noticing all these nuances that maybe weren't readily apparent. And now in a COVID world, we better, we better recognize those, those things and figure out how to innovate and include them or else, uh, you know, very much it, it will be to our disadvantage if we miss those things. So I'm, I'm guessing you're just, you're probably continually yeah. figuring that out even, even now, right? Um, yes. It's like, it's an everyday iterative process because what you think may have made a difference the first time you do it, maybe it does. And then, but not as much as you thought it would. So you tweak it here, you know, like the first time we did a virtual conference, we forgot that like everybody's at home with their kids. <laughs> like there's so many people trying to do their job with little kids running around. And we are like, oh, we should integrate something for the kids into this. Oh my gosh. Of so course. one of our clients is Comcast NBC Universal. So they were just releasing trolls. And we were like, why don't we have a trolls dance party for the kids? And like, we'll send them something to their home at first and they can have a coloring book while like, while mommy and daddy are on a conference call. And like, that's just something that is not, it's not just a Zoom call. It's, it's an active experience. Jeez, that's cool. So, yeah, I've, I've heard of, yeah, was, I've, heard, I've heard of maybe two or three examples like that where someone has explained, oh, this is how we held the, the event virtually, you know, at distance in a way that leveraged and took advantage of the present circumstances rather than just trying to recreate something that's that's old and, and gone and can't be replicated. But that stands in contrast to the 97 I've heard, which are, well, we did it online and it kind of sucked. Yeah, yeah. But that that nuance is the difference between having, let's say in this case, employees or team members that are brand ambassadors or people that just work for a company. If you have a brand ambassador, you're like, I fucking love my company. Like they really did a great job for me during all of this. They made me feel good. You know, not only do I still have a job, but they're, they're thinking about me and what I need. And I think that's so super important. Oh, for sure. People on the inside that speak highly of their company, their brands, that sort of thing, those, I always think of, okay, well, those are the people that would know if it's all BS, right? It's not the marketing yeah. materials, right? It's not the slick ads, the 30 second spots. It's like, yeah, but what's it really like? And when those people speak and preach and are ambassadors, as you described, I can imagine that must have all kinds of amazing strategic byproducts. It's just, it, you like the same with an external client and a, or a consumer. Right, like you know, you now know as a consumer, if you did something special for me, like I thought about what your situation is and what you might need right now and what I might be able to offer you for to help you during this time and I send it to your home, then I'm a loyal customer for life. Right, it's the same internally. You're, it's, you're still a customer of your company 
it's just a slightly different take on it. Well, let me try and steer this to some sort of conclusion because I think I, I could keep talking for many hours, clearly. <laughs> Same. This is fun. Um, tell me, give me a sense. What's what's next? Where what what are you excited about when you look into the future and in terms of where you're going next? Do you have any thoughts you can share about that? Oh, next, I feel like every day is next. It's like every every nighting for the exam. <laughs> the next is the exam, and then it's over, and you have a different one the next day. So it right now, I don't I don't know. I, I think it's super interesting to see how much of this goes back to normal. And I'm using air quotes when I say that. What are we going to keep from this experience? And what are we going to go back to how it was before? Um, I think a lot of innovation is coming out of this time. And I don't know that it's going to go 100% back to the way it was. Yeah, sure. And I'm kind of okay with that. You know, like, technology playing a major role like in healthcare and medicine. If for instance, how heavy everybody's leaning on telemedicine right now, I think is great. Like who wants to go to the doctor's office around a bunch of sick people? I'm cool with like a video chat and you have a sore throat and uh, you know, like, here's the thing, take a look at it, call in a prescription, I'm good to go. Obviously if you have to go in, you have to go in, but I don't see that changing all too often. And sort of being a part of evolving the consumer experience. I think I'm, I'm really exciting, excited about that because it is rapidly changing. And I think what COVID did was it, it accelerated the rate of change. Yes. I'm so all this stuff was coming at some point, but it just accelerated everybody's roadmaps and we're all like okay we got to push this into high gear like right now and that is really fun to be a part of yeah it's interesting when you think about that it's not that covid changed things so much as it accelerated things it accelerated us towards the changes we were already going towards and not all of those are negative. So, you know, we can, we, we can look at some silver linings. And it sounds like you clearly see opportunity despite all those crazy changes and uncertainties that are still out there. Oh, I think so, for sure. It is, I think there are seismic shifts coming. And like we were saying before, roadmaps that were 10 years out are now six months to a year out and not everything that comes out of this is going to be amazing but i think there is a lot of good that will come out of it and um a lot of different innovative ways to connect with people really to help them live a better life a happier life um through these innovations and i'm i'm pumped about that well i hear a lot of optimism in you. So, I mean, is it safe to say that you're, you're happy and glad to be a business owner in this time? Uh, there was definitely some stuff I would rather not have had to do. You know, we had to right size our business and unfortunately furlough some really great people. And that is never an easy task. 
Um, you know, during the 2009 recession, we went through something similar, not the same, because that is the, this is just a whole different situation. It's a It's it's really like a trifecta of um, financial crisis, um, a health crisis, and all of the the life-changing like job events that are happening it's just it's a tax on people physically and emotionally mentally and how everybody is dealing with that everybody deals with it differently and at a different time frame so that that is challenging to navigate if i'm looking at it from a purely high level perspective yes i really enjoy being a part of the innovation that's happening right now. And I like being able to lead some of these. Uh, I like being able to lead some of these new challenges and new ideas and coming up with those puzzle pieces. Right. But I, I don't like some of the, the byproduct of a bad economic and health crisis. If yeah. that makes sense. I didn't really say that very succinctly. <laughs> That's easy for you to say. Yeah, no, that, no. <laughs> clearly the, uh, clearly, yeah, whenever disruption happens, uh, it's very uncomfortable um, when people go from a place of certainty to uncertainty. Uh, human beings don't, don't like it because we want to know we have security and that we're going to be able to pay our bills and feed our families and all these things. And when that gets threatened, of course, it's painful, not only for yourself, but especially for your team to see them experience that. But at the same time, I think there's these like four or five stages of grief, right? That many of us have been going through and I'm starting to hear it from owners like you that we're getting to a place of acceptance and now we're starting to think beyond and say, okay, here we go. Their future is still out there. You know, as we say with my team, the best way to deal with the future is to create it. Um, and so I, I hear you likewise saying, yep, I'm gonna get up every day <laughs> and it might be changing day by day by day, but I'm still gonna um, look at this as an opportunity to create the future that uh, is important to me. I think that is incredibly well said. You said what I was trying to say <laughs> in a much more elegant way. But I, yeah, I just think it's really important that like, well, I think it's really cool that at our core at MOD, we adapt and evolve and how quickly we can do that is shaping our future as a company right now. So the fact that we can evolve as a company for the times has saved jobs, um, and allowed us to produce incredible quality work and help our clients innovate um, maybe differently than a company that can't just as quickly. Well, with that said, I think I will say thank you for spending a little more than an hour here telling me and uh, our listeners all about Mod, it's been so cool to hear your story. And I especially appreciate the transparency and vulnerability with which, uh, you know, you've been, you've been comfortable relaying your story. It's been awesome. 
Oh, it's, a, it's an honor. Thank you so much for having me on. I had so much fun talking to you. <laughs> Thanks. So for folks that want to uh, learn more about you and about your firm, where should we point them? Uh, so my website is themoderati.com. So we refer to ourselves as the Moderati. We are the Moderati, the people that work at Mod. Um, and then our Instagram is the same, the Moderati, at the Moderati. Got it. Brilliant. Well, Nina, thank you so much. Thanks for being an inspiration uh, to me and, and many other owners. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch and seeing how Mod continues to evolve and adapt and especially see where all these cool things you're doing with neuroscience, uh, where they, where they take you next. So thanks again. Thank you so much, Joel. It was great talking to you. You've been listening to the Rev Thinking Podcast. For more information on upcoming accelerators, events, or to learn how RevThink advises creative entrepreneurs like you, connect with us at RevThink.com.